All right, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to study verse 2 through 16, a very interesting passage of Scripture. We're going to read through this, and then we will unpack it together and learn from it what God wants us to learn here today. This is God's Word. Apostle Paul writes to this church, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, but since It is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair, to cut off her hair or shave her head. Let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, Because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So let's pray together, and then we'll jump in. Father, we, we thank you for your word, which speaks to us. This, this book that has been instructing this ancient church in your ways, in your will, and, and reflect your desire, Lord, for us to bring glory to you as not just men and women, but as your people, as your church. But I pray that you would help us uh, to connect dots, to, to understand what exactly is, is happening here, what you're instructing of us, so that we can apply that to our lives and continue to allow your word to change us. Lord, I pause and and take a moment to pray for the church in Nashville today as they, in whatever form, are gathering on the week of such tragedy. Lord, I pray that you would just be with them. Lord, you draw near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. I just pray that you would make your comfort known powerfully there. Lord, and all around our country where tragedy exists and world. In Jesus' name, amen. So what in the world's going on here in this passage, right? Isn't that the the question as you read through this? There are certainly a few notoriously difficult things to understand from this passage. It is certainly steeped in a cultural situation that is very different from our own, and yet it contains 
uh, principles that remain for us as a church. Maybe I can start with the true or false pop quiz that Pastor David Sunday gave to his congregation a number of years ago. And, and, uh, and I wonder how you'll do with this. Three questions, true or false. Number one, true or false. Everything God says in the Bible is good and is written and designed for our good. True or false? Okay, true or false? Number two, if the Bible speaks to any issue and we ignore it, we can assume that there will be trouble for the life of the church at some point. True or false? Okay, and then number three, true or false, if we find in our culture increasing opposition to something that the Bible teaches, it's all the more reason for us to understand and to embrace God's heart and God's will for our good and for his glory. True or false? All right, so if you answered true to all three of those, then I think that that puts us in a good headspace to unpack what's going on here. And first, let me say that, that we've, we've encountered another transition in this letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 11, Paul begins a new section of instruction. And we know that he's already been addressing them on a variety of topics. He's addressed theological problems. He's addressed problems in their practice, in their relationships with one another. We just finished a section, as you know, where Paul teaches us to subordinate our rights and our freedoms, ultimately for the good of others and for the glory of God. If we go back a few verses into chapter 10, let me show you verse 31 of chapter 10, where he says, in kind of a, a summarizing way, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, here's the deal. Do it all for the glory of God. And this, this verse actually kind of becomes a banner that hangs over this next section where Paul is specifically going to address the gathered church, which is really interesting because that's what we are. Here we are 2,000 years later, but we are gathered together today as the church, and the next four chapters of this letter to the Corinthians are going to address the church as it has gathered together, and as it does gather together week after week. And every bit of the instructions coming up in the next four chapters will be deeply connected to what glorifies God and what doesn't glorify God in our gathering? So glorifying God in the public gathering of God's people for worship, this is the new theme, but all of the old themes continue through into this section. The old themes of, of taking the low place and humbling ourselves and serving and building others up instead of ourselves, these all continue. So let's look at the first point that we see that emerges from our text today, and it's simply this, that Christian worship was remarkably countercultural regarding the equality of men and women. I wonder if that surprises you as the first point in a text like this, that Christian worship was remarkably countercultural regarding the equality of men and women in the church. Paul first praises them for how they are honoring the tradition so far, but this first point is embedded in his following instructions, especially for how a wife was to pray and prophesy in the church. And we're going to get to that. 
But it's right there that we can't miss that it was expected that women would pray and prophesy within the gathered church. And this would have been astounding. This fact alone was very countercultural. In the Jewish synagogue, the Jewish men would read and worship and pray, and the, woman, the women would often be separated from the men and often behind a veil. And women were only allowed to a certain point in the temple and Jerusalem. But Paul was committed because of the new covenant to integrate women and their gifts into the gathering of the church. And this is because the promised coming of the Holy Spirit in the church age was going to include everybody. Look at what it says in Joel chapter 2. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servant and servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. You see? So here in Corinth, the expectation is not that women would be separated out, but that women would pray and prophesy alongside the men within the gathering of God's people. Now, Paul is going to certainly address the roles of men and women in the church regarding authority and regarding leadership and pastoral ministry and, and preaching, and he will he will elsewhere tie those instructions to creation realities as well. But there's, there's a wonderful, inclusive participation in the gathering that is expected that we can't miss. A participation and a partnership that is also embedded in the creation mandate, all the way back to creation. God gave to humans a mandate to fill the earth and to work it, and to subdue it, and it was not good for the man to be alone. So God created a helper for him, and together, men and women fulfill God's purposes for creation. This is also a participation and a partnership embedded in the Great Commission that Jesus gave to the church. He gave it first to that group of men and women who watched him then ascend into heaven. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. I will be with you, behold, even till the end of the age. You see, Jesus is the one who beautifully restored the equality and value and dignity and partnership of men and women in his life. Just read the Gospels. And in his story, the fact that, that at his resurrection, the very first witness to the risen Christ was a woman. It's part of his story. It's part of his work on the earth today, and it's part of his worship in the earth today. And Paul knows this and teaches this. It's not a question of if women can or will pray or prophesy. The issue is when. When you do. When a wife prays or prophesies. And then it's here that Paul says, remember, 
Remember that Jesus hasn't erased God's design for men and women and their roles all the way back to creation. And that brings us to his instruction for this church. And it's actually quite simple if you are following along as I read it. He was giving very practical instruction for the church in Corinth about their gathering. And it was simply that when a man or a woman, or more particularly a wife, is going to engage in prayer or prophecy within the gathering, the man should not cover his head and the wife should cover her head. Now the question that comes to us is why? What's going on here? Why is this the case? And we know that in the ancient world, we have to take ourselves back there and, and to a time where most married women in the Roman world would go out of their house or of their villa and they would typically go out with their hair up. Sometimes not, but typically also with a shawl around their shoulders or on their heads or around their shoulders so that they could put the shawl over their heads. They wouldn't cover their face like they do in the Middle East today, but this article of dress, common article of dress for women, it was a symbol. It was a signal that was sent through fashion that number one, this woman was married, and number two, this woman was therefore unavailable, and number three, this woman was giving honor and recognition to her husband and to her family. Covering her head was a sign of discretion and modesty and dignity. And because theirs was a a shame culture, a shame and honor culture, most parts of life had hanging over it the possibility of either bringing shame and dishonor to yourself and others close to you or bringing honor to yourself and those close to you. And this is where it's very, very different for us today. We, we don't simply have the same symbol or signal that reflects availability or, or marriage. The closest thing that we have uh, is our wedding ring, right? This is the closest symbol that we have that indicates something about your status. So if you have a ring on your left hand, on the ring finger, then what does that tell everybody? It tells everybody that you are married. It tells everybody that you are unavailable. And in a sense, it honors your husband or your wife because the the day you put that on was a day that, that was meant to remind you of the covenant vows that you were making that day. Right? So there, we, we have something similar. But the thing is, the, the ring now and, and even the, the head covering then, it, it was an action, it was a symbol, but it doesn't necessarily tell you about the heart of the person wearing that symbol. So you can know that somebody's married by looking at their finger, but you can't know their heart with regard to their marriage. And you certainly can't know Their heart with regard to to God's design in marriage and God's roles in marriage. Which is ultimately why Paul drives to the principle underneath this practice that he was commending to them. 
Paul is telling men not to cover their heads when they pray or prophesy, and he's telling married women, wives, to cover their heads when they pray and prophesy. And then he drives this, anchors this into a principle, and the principle behind this practice is found in verse three. Look at it again. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So why in the world would this practice be commended to this church with regard to men and women in marriage? Well, Paul anchors it in in the reality, the principle that everyone has a head. And I don't mean your cabeza. I'm talking about an authority. This word means an authority. And God has designed for men and women to flourish under his pattern of headship and submission, which finds its roots in the Trinity itself. He says the head of every man is Christ. Everyone has a head. Everyone has an authority. And the head of man is Christ. Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Christ is the head of all things, even his church. Every man must submit to Christ and his authority and rule and reign for our eternal joy or for our everlasting condemnation if we don't. The head of every man is Christ. And then the head of a wife is her husband. And this doesn't mean that that women don't also submit to Christ as the head of all things. Of course they do. But in God's design and order, as Paul affirms in Ephesians, this is what God says. He says in Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For, this is why, the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And of course, lest this be abused, as it often is, goes on to encourage husbands to exercise this according to Christ's example who gave himself up for her, who sacrificed himself. The Bible encourages the exercise of authority as the exercise of humility and service and for the good of other and sacrifice. It's we who often get that wrong, not God's word. But the point remains that wives as their head, the husband, and this might sound countercultural, certainly to our ears, and maybe even archaic or off-putting or even offensive. But we know that the Bible teaches that men and women are both created in the image of God, and we are absolutely equal in value and in dignity and importance before God. We are simply made differently, the Bible says. We are given different roles by God to fulfill according to how God has made us as men 
and women. Our gender is not neutral. Our gender is not fluid. God created us as men and women, and we are meant to bring glory to God as either men image bearers or as women image bearers. And and part of God's design and order in the home and in the church includes headship and submission, including wives submitting, not to all men, but to your own husband. And once again, lest this divine order drift anywhere near the notions of superiority or inferiority, Paul closes this by saying, and the head of Christ is God. Head of man is Christ, the head of woman is her husband, and the the head of Christ is God. Meaning that even in the Godhead, there is the beauty of authority and submission. Even in his humiliation, Jesus was willing to submit to his father's authority. He, He said he did nothing on his own authority. Do you remember that? Only what his father gave him to do. It'll be Thursday of this week that the world reflects on Jesus in the garden. You remember where he, he, was, he was so crushed by distress at what was about to happen to him that he was sweating drops of blood and praying to his father, take this cup away from me. If there's any way, father, can I not? But what did he say after that? Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus submitted to the authority of his father. And if in this Trinitarian picture of authority and submission, you see superiority and inferiority, you're a heretic. Because Jesus is equal with God in his essence and being and is God with nothing that is God subtracted from who he is in glory and attributes and power and holiness. And yet Jesus gladly and intentionally and freely submits himself to his father. And it's this design that is the fundamental principle that then governs men and women, particularly husbands and wives, as they gather together to worship. And isn't it interesting how how beautiful and powerful Jesus Christ himself stands at the center of authority and submission himself. He and his gospel. Because Jesus is the head of all things. He has all authority. He has all rule and reign. And he exercised his his authority as, as a servant, willing to take the low place, humbled himself, even to death on a cross, sacrificing himself for the good of his bride. This is what Jesus does with his authority. And it is the very same Jesus who also takes the place of submission and sets an example for for wives of the beauty and the glory and the power of what it means to gladly, freely find yourself in that place. Look, Jesus 
and the gospel sit at the heart of headship and submission that find its roots in creation realities and how God has made us. Therefore, we can get to the second point, and it's this. Therefore, what Paul is saying in this chapter is that Christian worship that rejects God's design for both men and women does not glorify God. It does not. In other words, Paul tells them what it looks like to violate the principle of glorifying God as men and women in worship within the gathering. He says this in verse Verse four, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now, what's important to see in this paragraph are the words honor and dishonor and disgrace. Because that's what's at stake in the worship of God. It's the possibility of bringing honor to God and to others or shame to God and to others. And it's simple. For cultural reasons then, if a man covered his head, this would bring shame on his head, dishonor to his head, which is Christ, we've already found. And if a woman did not cover her head, this would bring shame or dishonor to her husband and to herself and also to Christ, such that she might as well shave her head alongside the scandalized adulterers or prostitutes of her day. Now, again, this is is where it's, it's so tough because this is very much a cultural issue for them back then. The issue was hair and and what you do to to cover or not cover your hair because in those days, your hair reflected something about you. It said something about you. If a woman's hair was, well, actually, a woman's hair was tied to her sexuality and to her availability. There's instructions then or, or anecdotes then that said that If a woman were to let her hair down in public, that this was potentially a sexual statement, sexually provocative at that time. Or according to a movement during that time in history of elite women, rich women, they were flaunting some of the customs and the norms just because. They would would let their hair down in public or carry their hair out in public uncovered just in rebellion to the customs and to the norms, and some of those women to actually signal to other men that she was available for sexual activity. Because if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. If all these Roman men are doing whatever they want, then what about us? The thing is, everybody knew this back then. Everybody knew exactly what was going on as you walked out of your house, much less how you entered into the church, much less how you came up to this microphone in order to address the church. So what was out of bounds was to communicate with your hair, either covered or long, 
uh, for men or uncovered for women, something that rebelled against or dishonored God according to his design. Look, whatever this all means in their cultural setting and what their looks signaled, whatever this means, it certainly means that God means for men to be men and women to be women. And men shouldn't try to act like they are not. And women should not act or look like they are not. And married women shouldn't act as if they were available to others. Because you could not only dishonor and disgrace those around you, but you could dishonor God. This is worship that is unacceptable to God. I've really been racking my brain all week long to try to, to, try to think about some kind of parallel because I just don't know that, that this is a rampant issue that we have, that we have out of control men and women you know, streaming to, to the mic to, to stick it to their husband or to their wife or to God with some prayer or prophecy. And I've also been trying to wrap my mind around just how weird it seems to me that this, this hair was, was such a thing because it just isn't in our culture anymore. Like these things aren't reflected. The, the covering of the hair was a symbol of authority. That just simply doesn't exist anymore in our culture, right? And, and yet my mind went to our recent experience together as an entire culture with regard to not an article of clothing, but my mind went to our experience with masks. And, and I, if it's too soon and if this is triggering for you, I'm sorry. I'm not, I don't want to say anything about masks and their appropriateness or not and the trouble that we went through and the mandates that were created, uh, the, the reality that, that maybe they worked or didn't even work. That's not what I'm talking about at all. What I'm talking about is that we all have a collective experience where whether somebody wore that or didn't said something, didn't it? You know what I'm talking about? Like it was, a, it was an accessory that made a loud statement about yourself, right? And the thing is, though it might have made a loud statement about yourself, actually nobody could tell what statement you were making in your heart. Because maybe you were doing it because that's what we're supposed to do. Maybe you were doing it because you were overly fearful if you didn't, maybe you weren't wearing a mask because you were sticking it to the man. Maybe you weren't wearing a mask because you had a physical problem that that would have caused a, a kind of, I heard of a kind of claustrophobia that, that wasn't helpful at all. All I'm saying is they had a similar visual signal sending in their time with regard to their gatherings and, and what somebody was saying by their external appearance. And then they were bringing that into the practice of the gathering and the worship of God. And that is what Paul is addressing. He's addressing the principle. Look at, Paul continues. He continues here in verse seven. Look what he says. 
He says, for a, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And that's difficult. And my thought is because the angels elsewhere in the New Testament are said to have, have are looking on in our lives. They're looking on and, and observing our lives and our worship. Nevertheless, he says, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. It's another place where Paul's answering the question, why is this so important that, that the roles of men and women in church be minded? Because these are indeed his commands for them. The the practice he was commending to them. A man ought not to cover his head and a woman ought to cover hers. And again, the answer to why is because of God's design. And Paul is certainly here referring to the creation of Adam and Eve. He says that man, because he was created by the hand of God, has no source other than the dust. He is the image of God. And the glory and reflection of God, disconnected from any other source used in his creation. But since the woman was created out of man, she is created in the image of God, yes, but sourced from the man's flesh, from his rib. So God saw his image in Adam, and Adam saw his own image as well in Eve. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, he said. In other words, there's an order of design, Paul is saying. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And once again, unless this is taken too far, Paul clarifies the value and interdependence of men and women now because every man now comes from woman. Look again at verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and by the way, all things are from God. Do you see how hard Paul is working to protect and preserve equality and yet to protect and preserve distinction? He even appeals finally to, to nature as a, a final kind of point in answering the question, why, why is it that this should be the case for them. And he says, judge for yourself in verse 13. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. In other words, even nature itself has seen fit to fill a woman's head with beautiful hair. And in the majority of the history of man, a woman's hair grew long and men would cut their hair short typically, and that demonstrated something. And the opposite made a statement as well. But the point is, 
But the worship of God that disregards God's design and distinction does not bring honor to God, but dishonor and, to dis- and disgrace to, to both God and to others. The main point here, and let me be really clear about this, the main point isn't the perpetual wearing of head coverings for women throughout the church age. That's not what's going on here. That was a a cultural symbol back then that they could practice to honor the principle that we are submitted as a church to God's design and order for both the home and the church. What matters is the heart, not simply the practice. Hair, long or not, covered or not, it does not send the same signals today. In some parts of the world, maybe it does. These practices and customs continue, but not so much in the West. It's just not really a thing anymore. There are other displays of masculinity and femininity that don't include hair in our culture and different cultures around the world. But in the end, I hope that you can see that this passage for us is not ultimately about hair. It's not about hats. It's not about man buns. It's not about from now on we're going to provide doilies in the back of the auditorium for all the women to to paperclip, not paperclip, whatever. (laughs) That clip to your head. We're not going to do that because these simply aren't practices that communicate the same thing for us today. It's the principle that matters, and it's the principle that we need to see today as a church. Are we honoring God in our gathering is the fundamental question. That's the heart of the matter here. Are we honoring God as men and women as we gather to worship first in our hearts of submission toward God and to Christ and to one another, and then refusing that to be sabotaged by a kind of attitude or dress that sticks it in God's face, a kind of immodesty or flamboyance that draws glory to ourselves and away from God. A kind of self-seeking that makes much of ourselves in worship instead of making much of God. Do you see, this is is what the issue is. The distraction that would have been caused if we just put ourselves in that situation. Where you know in a particular couple, there is something scandalous going on there. Something not right. Right? Particularly if, if she were to, to flaunt that and to intentionally, whatever it was that would, would cause something of the gasp in the church, and then to, to, to give a, a revelation from God, a, a prophecy, like this whole thing would have gone sideways 
At the heart of the worship of God is not only exalting him and and encountering him, but also hearing from him, which is what happens in prophecy. And that gets completely muddied over by the chaos and the scandal. So the question for us isn't so much what we necessarily do with our hair, The question is, is there a parallel to that in our own hearts, in our own midst? And maybe that's a good assignment to give for you and your community groups. What might this look like? Because again, in my experience, I I don't see this as a a rampant problem and issue, especially here among our church. And yet we're reminded that God cares about the right order and worship of his name as we gather together as men and women. So therefore, women know you don't have to cover your hair with something to pray or prophesy or to lead worship or to teach and redeem her kids or at a class across the building. The principle is God's desire for a right kind of submission in our hearts to his design and to his ways. A heartfelt submission to the authorities he has placed in our lives, in our homes, and in our churches, which means this is the third and final point, and we'll close, that Christian worship that acknowledges God's design for both men and women as we worship does glorify God. And that's what we're after. We honor Christ by honoring God's design for how he has made us and applying that in our interactions with each other as we worship. We don't claim our rights, but relegate them to honoring others. A wife is not meant to shame her head in worship. A man is not meant to shame Christ, his head, in worship. And the practice that Paul says is is do these things because this is what we come into all the churches. And again, at the very beginning, he commends them for following the traditions. But in a sense, there's a very practical instruction here for them. Men don't do this. Wives do do this. And in this, all things are done decently and in order as we do all things for the glory of God and not of ourselves. You see that? That's what's going on here. This is, this is an interesting text, isn't it? I should have tried to, to farm this text out to the other pastors as well. I don't know that they would have picked it up. I'm so glad they preached the last couple of weeks so excellently. But as we close, let me just ask this question at the heart of it. And worship team, you can come. The, the, the question then comes to us, how do you and I approach the gathering and the worship of God? And to make a a sharper point on it, are you here to make much of God and not ourselves? Are you here to, to make much of him? Is the gathering of God's people today for you mostly about God and the awesome wonder and privilege that Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my name, I am one. That Jesus Christ by his spirit is here right now amongst us. Doing a work in each of us. Revealing himself to us in different ways. Showing himself 
Whether it's through the words of the songs that we sing again and again, whether it's tears that have come to your eyes, maybe it's something that you've seen in his word today, or maybe the spirit connects something to your heart as you engage a friend before you leave. Is the gathering of God's people primarily about God and glorifying him, or is it about something else? This isn't a social time. This isn't a fashion show, that's for sure. If there's any other reason to gather as God's people other than God himself, then evaluate that because God cares about how we worship. He cares about how we gather. He cares about our hearts. And certainly the, the right order, the doing all things decently and in order, cares about our, our worship as men and as women. But in it all, what a, what a wonder and thrill and honor to think that we come into the presence of God to worship him. And certainly, I know that it is your heart and mind and our pastors and all of our leaders that we bring much glory to God when we gather. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship him again. Let's sing this song again that that gives honor and adoration and glory to him. God, we love you. We thank you for your word, even the hard parts that take time and and, and our, our minds to get through what you're saying and how to apply that in our day. I pray that you would allow us to be a church that glorifies you as we gather. As men and women who love you, been created by you, been saved by you, Jesus, you're our example and our hope. We worship you. Amen.